Today's podcast is also sponsored by NetSuite, the easy-to-use cloud-based business management software for every aspect of your business. Take advantage of NetSuite's special financing offer at netsuite.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Factor. Choose from 34-plus weekly flavored-packed dietitian approved meals ready to eat in two minutes. Head to factormeals.com slash goldpeter50 and use code goldpeter50 to get 50% off. Well, another week, another record high in the Dow. We continue to climb north of 38,000. We closed 38,215. That is a new nominal record high in the Dow. Also, I think the S&P hit a new record high today. Not so for uh, the Dow, or not so for the NASDAQ, rather, uh, which was down. Intel came out with bad earnings after the bell yesterday, down 12%. So I think that helped weigh down some of the tech names, and that pulled down the NASDAQ. You know, yesterday, it was um, Tesla that disappointed Tesla's shares were down about 12% uh, yesterday. You know, Tesla back below $200 a share. Um, it's actually um, below 190 now. 183 and a quarter was the close today. It was up slightly on the day following yesterday's big drop. So you have some of these earnings uh, announcements that were weighing down the, the NASDAQ. But the reason that the Dow is making new highs um, is that, Everybody is celebrating this Goldilocks situation that we have where we got this great economy and supposedly there was more news that came out this week confirming how great the economy is. Inflation's gone. So, you know, we've dodged that bullet. We got rid of inflation. And because we have this great economy with no inflation, the Fed is going to be cutting rates. You know, maybe they're going to start in March or maybe April or hard to say, but they're going to start and they're, they're going to keep cutting. And so this is great because we're not going to have a big drop in earnings that you might have in a recession because the Fed's not cutting rates because the economy is bad. It's cutting rates because inflation's gone, and that's good too. And, you know, normally you might think, well, if the economy is so great, why do we have to have rate cuts? After all, rates are not high by historic uh, norms. I mean, if you go back to pre-2008 financial crisis, or really pre the bursting of the dot-com bubble, interest rates where they are right now are pretty much normal. And given the fact that we have a lot more debt now than we had in the 1990s, and we have a lot less savings, you would think that the normal rate of interest would be somewhat higher than what it was, you know, in the 1990s or the 1980s when we had less debt, more savings, and we were more creditworthy as a nation. And in 1980, the government had a much smaller national debt than it does now. I mean, anybody knows who's borrowed money, which is pretty much everybody in America borrows money. You're always looking at your credit score, your FICO score. And the lower your score, generally, uh, the better terms that you can get on a loan. Why? Well, because you have your better credit risk. The lenders are looking at your credit history, 
looking at your total indebtedness, your income, your debt relative to your income to try to assess your ability to pay and the likelihood that you'll not pay default. And so, you know, the less debt you have, the lower your debt to income, right? the, the better terms you're going to get. More people are going to want to loan you money and they'll loan you money for a lower rate of interest. Well, if you apply those standards to the United States, I mean, our FICO score should be in a toilet. I mean, forget about the fact that we have had slight downgrades to our credit rating, which we didn't have back then. So we have a lower official credit rating, but it hasn't been lowered nearly enough to reflect the deterioration of our financial circumstances. But we have much more debt now, right? The national debt is 34.1 trillion and rising. Um, we have a couple hundred trillion of unfunded liabilities. You know, back then, back in the 1980s, 1990s, you know, we were still pretending we were going to do something about entitlements, about Social Security, about Medicare, that there was going to be some effort uh, to, you know, fix the problem before it blew up. Well, nobody at this point believes that we're going to do anything about stopping the bomb from going off. In fact, it's already gone off. We've already passed the point. I mentioned this in my last podcast. Social Security is officially broke right now because the tax revenues are less than the expenditures. The system is already running in the red, which means it has to loot the so-called trust funds. The trust funds are now liquidating their treasury portfolio, and it'll be completely gone in a few more years, right? Which really doesn't matter because the government could sell bonds without the trust funds selling the bonds. It just is an official acknowledgement that those funds, those trust funds are empty. And again, the only significant difference uh, is that when the bonds were owned by the trust funds and the government paid interest on the bonds, it paid interest to itself. So it really didn't count because the government took the money out of its right pocket and stuck it in its left pocket. So it it didn't really uh, cause the government any money. But now that the Social Security Trust Fund is having to sell these um, bonds to the public in order to get the money to make the, the Social Security payments, now these bonds are owned outside a government trust fund. And so now when the government pays interest, it's not paying it to itself. It's paying it to somebody else. So it's a net drain on the U.S. Treasury. And that drain is getting bigger every day as more people retire, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, and more people just drop out of the labor force and you know stop paying taxes. So fewer people are paying payroll taxes. And maybe you know some companies will be able to automate, use AI or whatever to eliminate some workers and they're not going to replace them with other workers. And so, you know, they're not going to be paying the Social Security taxes. You know, the computer programs don't have to pay into FICA. Uh, so all this is going to get bigger. But given the fact that we have this huge uh, hole in Social Security and it's, we're bleeding, we got a massive deficit that's running out of control. Uh, we have all these problems. We've got student loans now that we're forgiving. I mean, we weren't forgiving the student loans back in the 70s or the 80s. We were just getting started making those loans, right? So people still believed that the students were good for the money and they were going to pay it back. Well, now we know that they're not good for the money. They're never going to pay it back and they don't even have to because we're forgiving the loans. But again, 
when the government forgives the loans, it's not getting that revenue. It was supposed to get the money back that it loaned out. We have almost $2 trillion. That's an asset that the government had. Yeah, it was a liability to the people who borrowed the money, but it was an asset to the U.S. government. Well, now it's, it's you know, not uh, getting that asset. In fact, even though they've restarted the obligation to pay student loans, I think I read only about half the people who stopped paying their student loans for two or three years because of COVID. Now that they're supposed to pay them, they're not doing it. And I think the reason they're not doing it, well, there's a couple of reasons. But one is, once we kind of got them into a situation where they didn't have to pay, and what they did with the money is what all Americans do with money, is they spent it. So the minute they didn't have to spend money on student loans, they started spending that same money that they would have sent to the government, they started spending it you know, at, at Amazon or whatever, or they just at the grocery store. They, they started spending the money. And... They adjusted their budgets to need that money. And so now, after two or three years of a moratorium, when the government says, okay, everybody, now you got to start paying your student loans, the people don't have the money anymore. They've already redone their spending without the loans. Now they have no room. And so they just don't have the money. But also, I think we've gotten people to believe at this point that they don't really have to pay their student loans back, because eventually it's all going to be forgiven anyway. And so why pay? I mean, I think we've created that moral hazard that you're an idiot if you make your student loan payments, because nothing is going to happen to you if you don't make them, right? The government's not going to come after you. (laughs) They're not going to put a lien on your wages or your salary. There's no negative consequence. I don't even think your credit score is going to be impacted if you don't pay your student loans. So, so why bother to pay them? What, what's the incentive? And also, if at the end of the day, the loans get forgiven, which now there's an expectation that it's going to happen. Eventually, you know, people start expecting it. And as the student debt bubble gets bigger and bigger, which is now close to $2 trillion, it'll be $2.5 trillion, $3 trillion, $4 trillion. The bigger it gets and the bigger the burden on those who have to pay it, the more likely it's going to get forgiven. So if you make your payments now and they end up getting forgiven, you just wasted your money. I mean, what was the point? Just make no payments. So the government's not going to collect this money. And as more people find out that their buddies aren't making their student loan payments and nothing's happening to them, well, they're going to stop making their payments too. Right? Who, who wants to be the only fool paying off their student loan? And of course, again, the moral hazard now is borrow as much money as possible to go to college. Even if you were thinking about paying, don't take out a loan because you're not going to have to pay it back. It's cheaper if you borrow the money. It used to be more expensive because you'd think, well, I might as well pay for it now as opposed to borrow the money and pay interest. But now you're an idiot to pay for college. You should just borrow the money. I mean, it's not even borrowing. If you don't have to pay it back, it's, it's really you're getting a gift. And, of course, the colleges know this, so they're jacking up the tuitions like never before. Uh, and so the problem's going to blow up. But the point I'm making is this has impaired the government's credit uh, worthiness. The U.S. government has impeded its ability to collect on that asset. Uh, the budget deficits are exploding, the unfunded liabilities, there's no savings. Interest rates should be higher than they were in the, the 80s and the 90s. The only problem is we can't afford it because we have so much more debt. But, you know, 
your rates go up when your credit quality goes down. I mean, you can't, you know, tell lenders, look, you know, I, I'm really broke now, so you got to charge me less. No, they charge you more when you're broke because the odds are lower that you're going to pay them back. So why is it that if the economy is so great and everybody's convinced it's so great, why should the Fed cut interest rates at all? But the market's still expected because they know the Fed is going to come to the rescue because this whole thing is, is just a, a phony bubble. Anyway, I got a commercial break, so we'll take, uh, we'll take a break and uh, stick around. I got a lot more on this topic and a few more that we're going to get to on the other side. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,025 and one. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have already upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get customized solutions for all your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system. System with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, and it's all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you constantly excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com gold. That's netsuite.com gold to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com gold. All right, so I want to talk about uh, the economy and some of the economic data that came out this week and, and why everybody seems to think that the economy is so great, you know, especially economists. And I think one of the reasons that these economists uh, think the economy is, is, is good is because they don't know anything about economics. I mean, economist is one of the few professions that you could be a professional economist. You can make your living as an economist and know absolutely nothing about economics. I mean, that's not gonna work with most uh, professions, right? I mean, if you're a lawyer and you just don't know anything about the law and every time somebody hires you, you know, you screw up, you lose every case that, that, you, that, you, that you pursue, you're, how long are you gonna be a lawyer? You know, I mean, no one's gonna hire you, right? At least maybe not in the private sector. You know, maybe you could find some kind of government job, but you really can't be a lawyer unless you know something about the law. I mean, you may not be a great lawyer, but you at least got to, you know, know, know something about the procedures, how to do stuff. Or a doctor. I mean, what if you're a doctor, but you know absolutely nothing about human anatomy, about medicine, about any of the stuff that doctors are supposed to know? You just don't know any of it. I mean, anytime you have a patient, the patient dies. I mean, how long are you going to have a practice? Who's going to keep going to the doctor that kills all their patients, right? But, but you, it, as an economist, it doesn't matter. You can get everything wrong. You can get every forecast wrong. It doesn't matter. I mean, in fact, uh, there's an old joke. The reason that God invented economists is, is to make the weathermen look good, right? You don't really have to understand economics to be an economist. You don't have to understand economics to teach economics in college. Because the professors don't understand it either. In fact, if you know economics, you probably won't get hired as a professor of economics. I mean, part of the requirement for the job is not to understand economics. I mean, you got to know all this nonsense that masquerades as economics. You know, it's kind of like astrology, 
right? I mean, if you wanted an astronomer, right, if you needed an astronomer, you're not going to hire an astrologist. I mean, they're, they're not the same, right? I mean, yeah, they both have to do with maybe celestial bodies, but astronomy is a science. Astrology is just a bunch of BS, right? Well, really, that's what they've reduced economics to at American universities. And so we've got all these economists that really don't understand anything about how an economy works, right? Uh, and, and so that's why they're, they're, they're claiming everything is great. And of course, then you've got the worst economists, which are the ones that work for government, right? Which is generally the case with pretty much anybody who ends up working, working for government. But these government economists, their job is propaganda. It doesn't matter what the data is. Their job is to put a spin on it and to tell the voters how great things are and then claim credit for the administration. It's not just that the economy is good, but we did it, right? You hear these uh, people on, these surrogates for the Biden administration, they keep coming on and not only telling us that the economy is good, but crediting Biden, like Biden's proposals, right? His, uh, uh, whatever bills he passed, the Infrastructure or Act or the CHIPS Act or whatever Biden has done, that's supposedly the reason that the economy is doing so well. I mean, even if the economy was doing well, which it is not, but let's just say, you know, in some bizarro uh, world, the economy is doing well. It's not because of what Biden has done. It's in spite of what Biden has done. Any gains that the economy uh, manages are in spite of what the government has done. Because everything the government does is making it harder for the economy to do well. The government is putting obstacles in the path. The only way the government can help the economy is by getting out of the way. So is government smaller today than it was when Biden took office? Absolutely not. The government is bigger. It spends more. It regulates more. Uh, so how can it be helping the economy? It's like, you know, you got a, 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 you know, a knapsack on your back and you're, you're going to run a race and there's already maybe 20 or 30 pounds, you know, in your knapsack that you're lugging around. And so you're not running quite as fast as you could. And the Biden administration loads in some more weight uh, onto your backpack. You know, are you going to run faster now that you're weighed down with even more government? Of course not. Now, if somehow you manage to run faster anyway, despite the extra weight, maybe you just worked out extra hard or whatever you did, you were able to overcome that government obstacle. So the government couldn't take credit for the fact that you ran, you know, a certain speed because you would have run even faster had the government not burdened you with the extra weight. So that's what Biden has done. The only way government can help an economy is by getting out of the way of the economy, which means removing the impediments that have already been placed. So if the government puts weights in your knapsack and then they take some of those weights out and now you can run faster, it's not really government's fault. I mean, it's not, the government isn't the reason, right? The government say, hey, look, we did a great job. We removed those weights and now look how much faster the guy is running. Yeah, but you put the weights there in the first place. So how are you going to take credit for taking out the weights that you put in and the fact you left a bunch of them there? You should have taken out more. So the only thing the government can do to help the economy is to stop harming the economy, right? If, I'm, if I keep punching you in the arm, the only, you know, I can make you feel better if I stop punching you, but it's, I'm not doing anything good. I'm just not doing something bad. 
So that's what we need. We need deregulation. We need the government to repeal regulations that are already in place. We need the government to cut spending that already exists and lower taxes that have already been laid. And if they undo the damage that they've done, yes, then they can say they've helped the economy because they're no longer hurting it as much as they were. What grows the economy are the collective and not uh, coordinated, but independent, though collective efforts of all of the men and women who are independently pursuing their own self-interest within the economy and then working together in society to solve each other's problems and get rich in the process. That is what is growing the economy. And that is not what's got going on under Biden. So they have to lie twice. First, they have to tell us that the economy is great when it's lousy. And then they got to pretend that it's great because of something that the president has done. <laughs> when even if it was great, it would be in despite, despite all the things that the president did to undermine the economy. And the economy would have been even better had all these things that the Biden administration is bragging about and taking credit for, had none of that stuff been done, right? The economy would be in better shape than it is, yet Biden still wants to take credit for it. But, you know, we got a lot of this economic data uh, that came out that made people think that the economy was good. Most of the data was bad, even the data that they think was good. So I just put all of it up, up on my computer. So let me go into some of these data points. First one was leading economic indicators, which came out earlier in the week. Now, the only thing good about this number was that it wasn't as bad as it was supposed to be. The estimate was for a minus 0.3, and we got a minus 0.1, which is, I guess, the lowest you could be and still have a negative sign, right? Because it's just below zero. But what's significant about this is it's the 19th consecutive month where the leading economic indicators, oh no, not 19, 21, excuse me, I was a couple of months behind. This is the 21st consecutive negative number. Now, the record for consecutive monthly negative numbers is 22. So we're one week away from tying it and two weeks away from breaking it. That record was set in the financial crisis time period, the Great Recession, 2007, 2008, the Lehman Brothers collapse, all that stuff, right? That's the last time we had um, a string of leading economic indicators on a monthly basis that was about as bad as the one we've got right now. Now, I've heard now that because the leading economic indicators have been so bad for so long, right? They've been flashing, warning, recession, right? Because it's supposed to tell you where the economy is going. That's why they're lead, leading indicators. They have three sets of indicators. They have the, the lagging indicators, the coincidence indicators, and the leading indicators. And the leading indicators are supposedly the most important because they tell you where you're going. I mean, if you have indicators that tell you where you've been, I mean, that doesn't do you much good. I mean, like if you're driving a car, you know, yeah, you got to look in the rear view mirror if you're going to back up. But really, it, it's not going to do you much good to show you where you already were, right? Uh, the key is to look through the windshield to find out what's, what's up ahead, right? The coincident indicators kind of just confirm where you know you are. Maybe, maybe that's like looking out of the side, like checking out, you know, looking left or right. You know? uh, but you got to really be 
uh, staring ahead. If you want to be a good driver, I mean, you're really focusing mainly on what's happening in front of you. Yeah, I know you can get rear-ended by somebody who's not paying attention to what's going on in front of him, right? But in any event, so these are the most important of the series that the conference board, you know, they come out with these indicators. And now they're thinking, well, maybe we should just not even have these indicators because they must not work anymore. Because they keep telling us that we have problems ahead, but we don't have any problems. We never encounter these problems. And so they're starting to question the validity of the, the, the indicator because it must, it must not be right. So let's just get rid of it, right? Because it doesn't conform to what we think. But what I think is going on is I think the indicators are still valid. It's just that the other economic data points are invalid. All these other data points that people are relying on, like the official unemployment rate or the GDP numbers, those are the ones that are wrong. <laughs> the leading economic indicators are right. And we should have already been in recession. And we may already be in recession. So don't throw out the economic leading indicators. Throw out some of this other BS, which they may end up revising. Again, I, I talked about this uh, before, but it's an important point that, that bears repeating. The 2008, the Great Recession that, you know, that we had when we had this string of economic leading indicators negative for 22 months, that Great Recession, which began in December of 2007, the government didn't acknowledge that it existed until December of 2008, a year later. And in fact, between December of 2007 and December of 2008, all the economic data points were rosy. Everybody was talking about the greatest story never told, the Goldilocks economy, right? Everything was great. We had strong GDP. We had strong job creation. At least that's what the government was telling us with all the, the monthly numbers until December of 2008 when they went back and they said, you know what? All those numbers we've given you for the last year were all wrong. Take away all those positives and replace them with negatives. We've actually been in a recession for an entire year. We were telling you that the economy was great and it was growing and we were creating all these jobs. It turns out the economy was shrinking and we were actually losing jobs. We've just been completely wrong for an entire year. That's what the government said. And so if the government could do that, how could you trust any of this data right now? Especially when it doesn't jive with what the public is saying when Biden is the most unpopular president in history and Kamala Harris is the most unpopular vice president. I mean, why is she so unpopular? What the hell has she done? I mean, most people don't even know who she is, yet she's so unpopular. The reason they're so unpopular is because the economy stinks. You know, it's the economy stupid, Jim Carville, that's what voters care about. And the way the American voters react to their pocketbook issues is if the economy is good, they give the president credit and he gets higher approval ratings. If the economy is bad, they blame the president and the approval ratings go down. <laughs> so just like the the leading economic indicators, they want to say, ah, oh, well, there, let's forget about them. They want to say, well, let's forget about the public because the public is too dumb to understand how great the economy is. No, I mean, they're pretty dumb, but they get that because that's what they're living in. The disconnect is not between the voters and the economy. It's between the economy and the economic data. The data's wrong, the voters are right, and the LEI is right. Anyway, we got one more commercial break. I'm going to finish going over the economic data on the other side of the break.
Factors ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning. Skip the grocery stores, the prep work, and instead get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, plus over 55 add-ons. There are tons of options. Personally, I'm looking forward to trying their creamy pesto pork chops with spinach, cauliflower, rice, and roasted green beans or maybe the blackened salmon with smoked gouda cauliflower grits and broccoli. Just head to factormeals.com slash goldpeter50 and use code goldpeter50 to get 50% off. So forget about frantic lunch preps and rush dinners. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon in the new year. Fuel up fast with restaurant-quality meals all delivered right to your door and skip the overpriced takeout trap. Factor is cheaper and way more delicious than takeout. Get chef-crafted restaurant quality meals delivered right to your door. They're ready to heat and eat in just two minutes, which means more time for you. Plus, Factor now offers loads of snack options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep you going no matter what's on the schedule. So head to factormeals.com goldpeter50 and use code goldpeter50 to get 50% off. All right, I'm going over the economic data points and that somehow all the economists uh, that I hear on uh, the mainstream media were kind of talking about how great the economy is and supposedly the data that came out this week confirms <laughs> that the economy is good when in actuality it, it, it kind of confirms the opposite, as, you know, as bad as the data generally is. So we got the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index and that came out at negative 15 from negative 11 the prior month. In fact, this is the the lowest it's been since the economy was shut down during COVID. I mean, so that's like as bad as the economy could be when like nobody's doing anything because everybody's been ordered to go home. And now in this great economy, this indicator is the weakest it's been since the economy was completely shut down. And even the, the, the service sector now, this portion is back in contraction. But manufacturing has been in a recession for close to two years. Right? I mean, not even the government numbers confirm this. Right? We're in a manufacturing recession. Right? They ca- keep talking about a, a, a manufacturing renaissance. Yeah, they got the, the R right, right, except it's a recession instead of a renaissance. Um, but if the economy or manufacturing is in a recession, how can you talk about um, a great economy when manufacturing is in recession? I mean, isn't that an important part of the economy? Right, the stuff we, we, we make, and it's in a recession. How healthy can the economy be when a vitally important part, the goods-producing sector, has been in a recession for almost two years? Right? So you just have to completely overlook uh, the data point. And, of course, it's probably worse than the statistics indicate, which is generally the case with these government statistics, uh, by design. Another week. Uh, data point that we got was durable goods. That was supposed to come out, this is December, at uh, 1%, and it came out at zero. Uh, So that was a miss, although I think there were some other components. Ex-transportation, it was a little stronger than had been expected. But these are not, you know, booming numbers that would indicate that, you know, we're going to get a turnaround in, in, uh, in, in in manufacturing. Now, we did get the GDP numbers that came out. And this is what everybody was, you know, pounding the table on. I mean, Biden is thrilled with the GDP number 
for the fourth quarter. This is the initial estimate. You know, they're going to revise it, you know, at, you know, several times. But the consensus was for 2% growth. And there was a range, as there always is, around that number. The low end of the range was 1.3. The high end of the range was 2.5. We came out, or the number they reported was 3.3, right? Blows away the consensus forecast, way above the most optimistic forecast out there. And the personal consumption expenditures uh, was 2.8%, which was hotter than the 2.5 they expected, but a little cooler than the 3.1 from the prior quarter. And the same thing with GDP. You know, the GDP in Q3 was up 4.9%, right, which is another big number. Uh, and the, uh, the fourth quarter was expected to be lower, and it was lower, but not nearly as much lower as expectations. So this is supposedly great news, right? This confirms how, how great the economy is, that, that the Fed pulled off the miracle, right? We got a soft landing. In fact, it's not even a soft landing. We never even landed. We didn't even get close to the ground. We, I mean, the plane started to descend, and then, then we just pulled right back up, and, and we, I don't even know if we even dropped the landing gear. That's how great this was, right? So everybody is celebrating uh, at the Fed pulled off a miracle. We got rid of inflation, and we never even had to hurt the economy, right? Everything is fine, right? We, we, we've dodged this bullet. We had the, the most reckless period of monetary policy in U.S. history. We had interest rates at zero for a dozen years, massive QE, and all it took was a few rate hikes back up to 5%, and that inflation genie is right back in the bottle, and it's never going to show its, its, its face again, and, and this is great, right? Well, first of all, this GDP number doesn't confirm that we have a good economy. All it confirms is that there was more spending in the economy, because that's really what's being measured, government spending, uh, uh, personal spending. Um, and the big factors driving the GDP was the increase in government spending. Well, where's the government getting this money? It's borrowing it. That's not a recipe for economic growth. That's a recipe for disaster. The national debt, even if you look at the percentage that it's growing, and forgetting about the dollar, dollar amount, but the debt is growing much faster than the economy. So are we getting richer or are we getting poorer? You know, if you're just looking at your assets and not looking at your liabilities, you can think you're really rich. Yes, I grew my assets by $100,000. I'm $100,000 richer. Well, what if your liabilities grew by $200,000? You're $100,000 poorer, right? But if you just focus on one side of the balance sheet and you ignore what's going on on the other side, you can pretend anything. That's what we're doing. We're looking at what did we grow the economy to? but we're not looking at all the money we had to borrow to get that growth. If we had to borrow a dollar to get 10 cents worth of economic growth, was it really worth it? Was it worth going into debt? No. Did we borrow ourselves into riches? No, we didn't. We borrowed ourselves deeper into debt and poverty. Plus also, not only do we have more debt, right, to show for this small amount of supposed growth, but now we have to service that debt. We have to repay that debt with interest. So that diminishes economic growth in the future when we're burdened by the responsibility to repay and service this debt. So this is not real economic growth. The economy is shrinking. We're covering it up 
with debt and spending. And we're looking at the result of that, which is this GDP number, and we're pretending everything is great. And again, another reason, too, that the GDP numbers go up is because we don't adjust them enough for the real rate of inflation. The deflator maybe captures half of the inflation, and that overstates economic growth. That's another reason the government likes to underreport inflation, is because every time they underreport inflation, they get a twofer. They tell the public that inflation is lower, which is good, but they also get to tell them that economic growth is higher, which is also good, right? So they lie about these numbers, and it's not like they just lie. The, the, the methodology for computing the numbers is a lie. So the numbers are designed not to be accurate. They're designed to understate inflation and overstate growth. And so they, they work the way they were designed uh, to work. Um, we got you know the trade deficit again in goods. Again, $88.5 billion uh, deficit. I mean, these are huge numbers. I mean, it was slightly less huge than the uh, $89.3 billion from the prior month. But these are gargantuan trade deficits. We are hemorrhaging red ink on a, a trade level. I mean, if we had a good economy, where is it in the trade numbers? Again, they try to tell us that because our economy is so strong, we run these big deficits. That's like a, a CEO of a company. Yeah, because our company is doing so great, that's why we're losing all this money. I mean, this is a measurement. Strong economies, wealthy economies generate trade surpluses. <laughs> it's the basket case economies that, 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 that can't produce enough to, for their own citizens, and they have to rely on what other countries produce, and they run a deficit, and they go broke. When America was the world's wealthiest creditor nation, right? obviously it's better to be the world's richest nation with the most assets than have the most liabilities, which we have now. But how did America become the world's wealthiest creditor nation, where the world owed us so much money and we were rich because we had all these assets, right? Because then we took the money we earned becoming a creditor nation and we bought up businesses and real estate all around the world. Americans were wealthy and they were accumulating assets. Now we're broke accumulating liabilities. But where did we get all this money? By running trade surpluses. We kept running trade surpluses, and then we took our surpluses, and that was our profit, and then we were able to buy foreign assets right, and become really rich uh, because we produced our way to riches. We exported our way to riches. right? So now we've got uh, lousy data, and the economists just don't understand this because they, they don't understand economics. The weekly uh, jobs numbers, they picked up a bit you know, off the bottom. It was 200,000 in the prior week, and now it's 200,000. 214,000. But I mean, eventually we're going to get a big spike in that. Another uh, manufacturing number, we got the Chicago Fed national activity. That was minus 0.15. And the three-month moving average was moved down to minus 0.28. So again, more bad economic news. We got the Kansas City manufacturing index came out for January, minus nine, right? Prior level was minus one. I mean, all these numbers have a minus sign. Right? And in case, you know, for those of you who are not economists, minus ain't good. <laughs> you want these numbers to have a plus sign in front of them, not a negative sign. Right? If you're claiming the economy is good, uh, you want to have a plus. But one of the 
numbers. Oh, before I get to that, let me go to today's number that came out, which is the personal income and spending number, which everybody was excited about. Right? This is more bad news. So personal uh, income was up 0.3, but personal spending was up 0.7. And the prior month was actually revised from up 0.2 to up 0.4. Now, if your income goes up by 0.3, but your spending goes up by 0.7, how do you make that work? Well, you raise your savings. The savings rate plunged to a new uh, low uh, for this cycle. Um, this is not a good economy where your savings are being depleted. Again, in a good economy, you build up savings. Things are so great, you have money to save. Again, that's how humans work. During good times, you save, right? People want to have savings. They don't want to live paycheck to paycheck. And when times are good, when you're earning a lot of money, you have some extra, you save it. When times are bad, that's when you tap into your savings. So if Americans are tapping into their savings like never before, it's because times are bad. And this is despite the fact that so many people have two or three jobs. That still doesn't cut it. They still need their savings. And a lot of people have already depleted their savings. That's why they're maxing out their credit card, right? Credit card debt is exploding. But again, these numbers confirm that the Fed has lost the battle against inflation. While everybody is talking about how inflation is gone, these numbers show consumers keep on borrowing and spending money. What does that mean about prices? They're going to keep on going up because of all this demand. And in fact, even the, uh, the numbers, the PCE, which the Fed looks at, Somehow it dropped on a year-over-year basis. Uh, the headline went from, well, the headline was actually unchanged year-over-year. 2.6, and it's still 2.6. But the core went from 3.2 to 2.9. But if you look at what happened during the month, the numbers were hotter than expected. The increase uh, was more, well, let me see, the... Um, no, actually, no, it wasn't more. It was pretty much exactly as expected. Uh, but somehow the year-over-year the -year number went down for the court. But these are still numbers that are well above two. I mean, even 2.9, yeah, it's got a two-handle, but just barely. But we are bottoming out when it comes to inflation. And we got more economic news this week that, that confirms that we've bottomed out. First of all, Oil prices quietly rose about $5 a barrel this week. Nobody really talked about it, but we closed above $78 a barrel, $78.23. I think that's last, uh, up another $0.87 cents today, although they may adjust it a bit you know, uh, later in the day. But that's $5 a barrel higher than we were a week ago. That's a pretty big move. Um, I think we're getting ready for an explosive move up in oil prices. I mean, I've thought that for a while, but we pulled back. But the charts, to me, look like we got a lot of support and we're going much higher. And I think that higher oil prices are going to bleed into the headline CPI numbers before the election. So we're going to start to see a meaningful impact. And we're going to be moving farther and farther away from the Fed's 2% goal and closer and closer to that 9.1% level that was the peak but also some other indicators to me that show that inflation is coming back, other than the fact that I know that it's never gone away because we haven't you know, had an increase in savings and a decrease in borrowing and spending. 
record government spending, record personal spending, debt record highs. So this is all inflationary policy uh, on a fiscal side. All this stuff is, you know, gonna, is not, not what you do when you're trying to win an inflation fight. But look at the money supply. We got the M2 money supply earlier this week, and it rose for the month. This is a monthly number that we get. Every month they tell you the, the M2. And it was up a half a percent in, in one month. That's a big increase, almost $100 billion in, in new money added to the, the economy in a month. Now, that's inflation, right? The expansion of the money supply, the expansion of the credit supply. Now, M2 did start contracting from about the middle, I think it was June-ish or so, of 2022. Uh, and for about maybe nine, 10 months, money supply was coming down. Now, compared to how much it went up in the few years prior, you can barely see it on a chart. But yes, it was a slight decline from the peak. So money supply went like this, and then a little teeny bit down, right? Now it's going back up. It's kind of been bumping around, and now it's turned higher. And I think money supply is going to surge before the end of this year. It's going to hit a new all-time high in money supply. So money supply is growing. What does that tell you about inflation? That is inflation. And the credit never stopped growing. Even though money supply came down a bit, credit supply never did. It kept on expanding. And for most Americans, I mean, they're pretty much indifferent to money or credit. I mean, they both work, right? You, you don't need any money when you go into a store. You have a credit card. You could buy just as much stuff as a guy that has actual money, right? So all of this is part of the demand that is, that is pushing uh, prices higher. I've also noticed the Fed's balance sheet for the past couple of weeks uh, has expanded. So it's kind of stopped shrinking. And in fact, there was some talk this week that the FOMC is already talking now about uh, tapering off the quantitative tightening program, meaning not selling as many treasuries. Well, why? I mean, the balance sheet is still huge. It's still almost $8 trillion, right? I mean, why, why slow down? I mean, if the economy is so great, can't they pick up the pace of shrinking the balance sheet, of normalizing that balance sheet? After all, that's what Ben Bernanke said back in 2009 when he went to Congress and he was accused of monetizing the debt by doing quantitative easing. And at least back then, Ben Bernanke knew that debt monetization was a bad thing. And so when a Republican congressman said, hey, this is a bad plan, you're monetizing debt like a banana republic, uh, Ben Bernanke said, oh, no, oh, we would never do that. No, not the Federal Reserve. We would never monetize debt. No, of course not. We know that's a bad thing. Right? No, no, we're 100% with you. We're against debt monetization. That's why we're not doing that. What we're doing is a temporary emergency deal here. We're buying these bonds just because there's an emergency, right? We're just coming in as a lender of last resort, right? It's, a, it's an unprecedented financial crisis. And so that calls for this unprecedented monetary policy. But no, 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 no. We would never do something like debt monetization. We know that's bad, right? So what we're going to do is when this emergency ends, you know, probably later in the year, right, when the emergency is over and it's kind of normalized, well, we're just going to sell all these bonds that we bought. We're just going to put them right back into the market, right? So don't call us debt monetizers. No, no, because we're not permanently expanding our balance sheet. It's just temporary. We're going to shrink it right back down. Don't you worry, right? That's what they said 
in 2009. Now, when Ben uh, Bernanke said that, I came out and I said, he's lying. There's just no way that he's going to, of course, he's monetizing the debt. He just doesn't want to admit it. I said that they could never reverse this, that it was a monetary roach motel, right, that the Fed checked us in and there was no way it was ever checking us out. Uh, you know, and then we'd have more, uh, uh, you know, QEs than Rocky movies, what I was saying. I knew that once the Fed went down this road, there was no turning back, right? But here's my point now. If the balance sheet is barely less than, you know, $8 trillion, and they're already talking about slowing down <laughs> the quantitative tightening, now you know this is just a precursor to stopping it completely and going the other way. I mean, I think that's the big pivot that's coming. Not the rate cuts, but the re- return to QE. I think we're going to return to QE soon, maybe April, May, I mean, before the election. Now, they already talked about that, that term funding bailout program that started last March. The Fed came out this week and they said, you know what, we're going to change it. We're not going to do any more of these bailouts. Uh, we're going to stop the facility going forward for new loans, um, which I think is going to be a problem. I mean, they should do that. But they, had, they didn't say anything about the loans that were already made and whether or not they're going to be uh, forced to be repaid in March, which is, you know, that was the terms. It was a one-year loan. Everybody's supposed to pay the money back, but of course, nobody has the money to pay it back. So it's not even possible. And all the banks uh, would fail if they were forced to repay the loans. But I also think that now that the Fed is making it clear that banks can't go to the Fed anymore, that's going to create another run on the smaller banks. Because the only reason the smaller banks are surviving is because the Fed is there making these loans. And if they don't make these loans anymore, the public could pull out their money because they want to have their money in the too-big-to-fail banks. I mean, if your bank isn't too-big-to-fail, it probably will. So take your money out. And, and so that's another moral hazard that the government creates with its plans is it tilts the playing field even further in favor of the big banks, which get bigger and bigger and bigger, which, of course, you know, can't fail because they're systemically important. So it just makes the whole system that much more vulnerable to concentrate more and more deposits in the largest, most insolvent banks. But because they're so large and so insolvent, we can't let them go broke, right? And so it just creates an even bigger problem. And that's what they're, uh, they're, they're doing here uh, with, that, with, that, with that program. But all of this uh, money supply growth, um, this is the big pivot. It's going to be back to quantitative easing, which is going to be done for a multiple of reasons. One is to prop up the banks. Two, to prop up the government, because the government can't afford uh, to pay the interest on the debt. And, and, and so the Fed is, is cognizant of this as much as it denies that that's what's driving policy. That is absolutely what's driving policy. But it's also the election. The Federal Reserve wants to reelect Biden. They always want to reelect the incumbent. That's the deal. Right? Every time you're an incumbent, the deal is the Fed's going to help you. And, you know, if you're the party that's on the outside trying to get in, that's a problem until you actually win. Because once you win, now you get the same cushy deal with the Fed. That's right. Whoever is in charge gets the Fed's help. That's, that's the way it works. 
And it's not a coincidence because whoever is in charge is the guy, that's the guy or gal who reappoints the Fed chairman, right? So you want to help your boss, right, if you want to keep your job. But I think, as I said, Powell knows that his chance of keeping his job in the Trump administration is slim because even though Trump appointed him, he wanted to fire him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as soon as he started hiking race, he wanted to fire him. Um, so he's not going to hire him again. He's going to replace him with somebody else, right? So um, the, the person most likely to reappoint Biden, I mean, reappoint Powell is Biden. Uh, and, and Biden knows this. Uh, so they want to do whatever they can. And if I, I'm correct that inflation is going to be picking up, it's going to be weakening the economy, we could see a more meaningful turnaround. I mean, maybe we'll even get the government to come back and officially acknowledge that we're in a recession. And of course, once we're in recession, uh, then there's going to have to be stimulus, right? The government just can't do nothing. The politicians aren't going to say, you know, the economy is in recession. We've got an increase in unemployment, but our hands are tied. Sorry, we can't do anything. So tough, right? We can't, we can't help because, you know, we've, we've got too much debt now. Uh, so we just can't borrow any more money. You know, I mean, everybody still pretends that it's free, right? They're talking about, well, during COVID, we had no problem finding the money. We just conjured it up out of thin air, which means whenever we need money, we could just conjure it up, right? That's what they talk about for the reparations. When someone says, how are we going to get trillions of dollars for reparations? And the response is, well, where'd we get the COVID money, right? From, we get it from the tooth fairy, from the man on the moon. We can have any amount of money we want, right? That's, 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 so why deny anybody anything? So in an election year, the voters are not going to get denied, right? Uh, the government is going to do whatever it can, which means the Federal Reserve is going to cooperate to make it all possible. So inflation is coming back. The, mar the, the, the economists, the Wall Street strategists are completely wrong. They're wrong on the economy. They're wrong on inflation. And that's why all their investment decisions are wrong. <laughs> they're buying the stuff that they should be selling. And they're selling or not buying the stuff they should be buying. Um, but we're doing the opposite. And we've been doing the opposite because I'm confident that I'm right. And that the crowd is wrong, as they usually are. The majority is usually wrong, especially when it comes to investments. Except they can be long, wrong for a long time because it's a numbers game. Right? Warren Buffett said, I think, in the short run, the market is a voting machine. Right? It does whatever the people think or it's going to do. But in the long run, it's a weighing machine. And that means the fundamentals are what count in the long run. And that's where I'm invested. I'm invested for the fundamentals for the long run. I've got the winning hand. Right? Everybody else is just bluffing. Uh, but the key is to, to, to stay in the game long enough to, to have the showdown where you get, you get to collect all the chips. And I think if you keep betting on gold and silver, you know, call up uh, Shift Gold, and, uh, you know, sales have been slow all over uh, the country right now, even though we're above 2,000, even though gold was slightly down on the week, right? Oil went up, black gold, but gold was down slightly, but we're still above 2,000. I think we're around 2,020. Gold stocks actually inched up a bit on the week because they really got beat up the week before. Uh, so they just moved up a little bit. I mean, nothing big, but I mean, they're great bargains right now. Uh, you know, I put quite a bit more of my own money into uh, the mining stocks um, in my own account and anybody who likes these stocks and you know should be doing the same thing uh, I think the upside potential is just enormous uh, compared to the downside risk and so 
this is the speculative bet that I want to make. And anybody who wants to speculate, I would encourage it. Now, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to do your own research. Buy my gold fund uh, managed by Adrian Day. I mean, I know I'm not smart enough to pick these gold stocks. So even I hired somebody who knows more about it than I do. Uh, Adrian Day has been doing it for 40 years. Uh, got a great track record. He runs not only my mutual fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, but all the separately managed accounts that focus on, on mining. Uh, so you can call up Europe Pacific Asset Management, go to our website, europac.com, uh, and you can get a, a managed account in this sector, and Adrian will manage it. Or if you want to do it yourself, my uh, mutual fund, my gold fund, as well as my value fund, dividend payers fund, emerging market fund, a bond fund, they're on all the big platforms, all the major discounters. You can buy all of them, no load, uh, you know, and get in cheaper. Uh, but just do something. You know, this is the eye before the storm. Uh, and so before, you know, we're in the actual storm, right, or the eye of the hurricane, uh, before we're, you know, we're, we're getting consumed by the winds and the rain, uh, get your financial house uh, buttoned down, get everything in order. Anyway, that's it for now. Oh, I forgot to mention, I should have mentioned this at the tip of the show to give people time, but I totally forgot. But I am doing another Q&A for the premium members after this. So I'll probably take maybe like a five or ten minute break give everybody a chance to sign up at shiftradio.com slash premium. If you're not already a premium member, if you want to uh, sign up and you want to listen uh, to the Q&A or participate, don't just listen, ask me a question. That's the whole point of it. It's not just the answers. That's what I supply. It's the questions <laughs> that all you guys supply. And if there's questions that you have that I'm not answering on the podcast, well, I answer them on the Q&A. So I'm going to be doing that at shiftradio.com slash uh, premium. And don't forget, you like the video, uh, give it a thumbs up on YouTube, uh, throw me a comment, uh, like, whatever, to try to you know uh, get some more traffic uh, into the site. Anyway, that's it for now. Have a great weekend, everybody, and I'll be back again next week.